Alright, ladies and gentlemen, it's come, it's arrived, it's raining, it's mildly cold. I'm here to declare in mid to late September that summer's dead. In the words, public enemies Chuck D, bring the noise. FM Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor. Answers was good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. Yeah, seems like last week was the last week, well, here in the UK anyway, of uh, reasonably solid weather. And uh, yeah, for the past three or four days or so, it's been just wind, wind, wind. You know, solid, okay weather, but a lot of wind. So it doesn't really make it. You know, it could be it could be twenty two degrees, but windy, and that's just annoying because who wants a really windy day? You know, it's just it's not it's not fun. Um, but yeah, here we are, mid September, or mid to late September now, um, and yeah, a summer a summer done with. Um, hope you enjoyed that one. Um, you got. A, I always think I was a, I always find it a bit weird when um, people talk about you know summers or seasons in any fashion in you know in like a minute uh in a in a specific way so you have 80 summers you know if you if you live until you're eight years old you have 80 summers you know what i mean and that sounds really finite and quite worrying i don't know why but yeah just saying i have let's just say 60 summers left <laughs> it's just it's what it's odd you know what i mean so uh yeah so it's, uh, 60 potential Notting Hill carnivals or 60 hit-ups to, to cross the tracks, you know what I mean? It's just odd. It's just odd to think about it in such a finite way. But, um, yeah, um, new visuals. Should probably say that um, off the bat. Hope you like the visuals. It's based off a... It's a really random inspiration. And that's kind of why, I, you know, that's why art is fascinating, right? You can find inspiration from the most odd of places. Um, I think I was on Twitter, which, um, another piece of news is that I'll probably be hopefully off Twitter by, by, um, 2024, but as soon as New Year's comes in, I'm gonna delete that fucking thing off my phone. Um, I don't know if I'll delete my account. I think that's a different story. Um, but yeah, just, um, I'm definitely taking off my phone and stopping using it. It's, uh, my day-to-day use of it. That's for damn sure. Um, but yeah, uh, what was I talking about? Oh yeah, so <laughs> see, I go from one thing to another. So I was on, yeah, I was on Twitter, and um, uh, it was I think a grown, I think grown up rap, either grown up rap or microchop. Shout out to both of them anyway. Um, whoever posts them, or Gino Sorcinelli, who hosts microchop. Um, and yeah, I, I saw I think it was microchop because he just posts endless threads of just solid fucking music from all over the shop. I don't know how he does it. Um, I don't know how he keeps consistent with it. It's really impressive. Um, I just really respect him on that front uh, for just keeping it coming. But um, yeah, he does, uh, you know, artist threads, producer threads, uh, very specific threads in some ways, like, uh, I don't know, 
female female rappers in the nineties or you know, so stuff like that. Just really random threads. So, so shout to Microchop. And uh yeah, he just posted a picture of a compilation album uh by Jazz Penis Bobby Timmons. And I saw it and I was like I like that. <laughs> you know? I was just that's really clean. I really fuck with that. I'm gonna see if I can make a WG logo out of it. So I got my camera, um, went into my bathroom because that's just the best, I don't know, just the closest I have to consistent lighting. And because everything's, uh, you know, uh, like a bathroom, just a nice shade of grey and white, right? Just looked in the mirror, just um, angled the camera a bit. And uh, yeah, just um, that's that's what you got right there. And uh, just went on Canva, just fucked about with it to see what I can do with it. And yeah, that's why I got out of it. So um hope you like the new logo. Um I've I've only wanted to do a new logo because I don't have the afro anymore. I literally had it for a few months. Um so yeah, I've I've been wanting to get a new one anyway, but I just got that impulsive inspiration and um just wanted to hit it. So yeah, hope you like it. Um I really like it, I really rate rate it and uh yeah, shout out to Bobby Timmons. Um and go listen to the compilation album as well. It's got it's solid. It's got um Obviously, he's done um, piano work for, you know, a lot of jazz legends. Um, the most notable track is Moaning, and that's a goated track um, in jazz circles. Um, and, yeah, just really good album. Um, little compilation album, just some piano stuff. Um, yeah, if you're into that, if that's your, if that's your jam, please give that a spin. Um, but, yeah, new logo. And, um, yeah, might be off Twitter by the end of, uh, by the end of, uh, by the end of this year, hopefully. Um, delete my account. Another story. We'll see. Uh, we'll see how I feel. And I'm also going to randomly just saying this, but I'm going to do. I usually obviously do my interview list, which includes you know my songs of the year, EPs, and also albums. Um, but I'm, I might um start even now just crafting a um kind of just an extra, an extra piece um of songs that didn't make my songs list of that of that particular year. But I've actually had on my regular rotation since. Um, and I don't want to pick tracks that I gathered, you know, years later. Stuff that I listened to that year, liked, but never put on my regular rotation. And then by the by the year, by the next year, I was just like, oh, wow, I've gone back to this. And I'm just like, this this track's heat. And there's a lot, I have a lot of those. Um, so I might make a little list of that just to guess up those particular tracks because, you know, I like talking about the stuff I like, and those tracks are definitely, definitely uh, in in those runnings. Um, and also stuff like, um, uh, and also works that you know came through very late in December, and I didn't know whether to actually put it on my songs list because I was like, I like it; it's in my regular rotation. But am I going to remove it for something I've been listening to since February? Um, and the answer is usually no. But I still end up having it on my regular rotation for a while. So, and it just goes, it just, it just sinks into that gray space. You know what I mean? That gray area of not being talked about in my opinion. Um, so yeah, gonna ask my, that's my mindset at the moment. Just, um, thinking about, um, yeah, just dip into it, doing that particular article, um, for December on top of the end of year lists and, uh, and yeah, the new logo, which I did whacked out in a few hours <laughs> and a couple of photos worth. Um, but yeah, anyway, let's get into the show. We have, we're going to bring it back, um, bring back the um, 
half regular show, half long read, and um, see how that goes. Um, so we have an environment tech and a long read, and with that said, formalities before we begin. Uh, email, uh, writing, socials, all of that in the full show notes, as well as the music for the show and the podcast under the 5 EPN. Um, really imp- really good episode of Digging Digits just dropped, um, DRTD Bias Volume 20, where we talked about, uh, for the first time, didn't actually talk about music. We talked about Top Boy, um, which we both love. Um, I I feel more um, critical of the show, but I still hold a still holds a place in my heart. But I'm just very fascinated by the decisions decisions made over the course of the twelve years. Um, so yeah, I said on the show, I really one day if I ever wrote like a book. Um, or a um, or a, or even a podcast series, an limited series or whatever, you know, critiquing a particular show, it would be Top Boy. Um, Top Boy is my favorite show of all time. It's not my, you know, I don't hate it. I really love it. Right, it's just really up there for me. But there's so many questions I have towards it that I'm just desperate for answers. Um, so yeah, just gonna. I, I don't I don't I don't believe in manifestation like that. But I, yeah, but I'm saying it. So here we are. Anyway, let's get to the show. Uh, let the beat drop. Let's get into the show. In a week where TikTok is fined 345 million euros for breaking EU data law on children's accounts, Russell Brand is accused of rape, sexual, sexual and emotional abuse. Uh, Sir Horace Ove, a pioneering British filmmaker, photographer, amongst other things, um, dies aged 86, so it's a legend. Uh, random one, but I think a good one here. Uh, French ski resort closes forever due to lack of snow. Um, so, yeah, that's happening. And uh, lastly, Canadian PM Justin Trudeau accuses India of murdering Sikh community leader Hardeep Singh Nijar on Canadian soil, so a little bit of Canadian Indian beef brewing on the barbie right there, so uh, we'll see how that goes. And let's begin with um, tech, because the online safety bill has finally, uh, well, is a, is about to become law, um, passed through the House of Parliament on Tuesday, um, so if my minor knowledge of UK politics is correct. It has to go through the House of Lords next. And uh, if they accept it, then that's job done. Um, obviously, it's been a few years of this being a thing. Um, and there's been a lot of talk for it, a lot of criticism, and um, rightly so. Um, this is more of a just a overall, you know, recap piece um, via The Verge, uh, written by Emma Roth, and it's called UK. But it passes massive online safety bill. So let's jump right in. The UK's online safety bill is ready to become law. The bill, which aims uh, to make the UK, quote, the safest place in the world to be online, unquote, passed through the Houses of Parliament on Tuesday and imposes strict requirements on large social platforms to remove illegal content. It will be enforced by UK telecom re- regulatory agency Ofcom. Additionally, the online safety bill mandates new age-checking measures to prevent underage children from seeing harmful content. It also pushes large social media platforms to become more transparent about the dangers they pose to children, while also giving parents and kids the ability to report issues online. Potential penalties are also harsh, up to 10% of the company's global annual revenue. The bill has been reworked several times in a multi-year journey through Parliament. But not only 
Does online age verification raise serious privacy concerns? The bill could also put encrypted messaging services like WhatsApp at risk. Under the terms of the bill, encrypted messaging apps would be obligated to check users' users uh, with an apostrophe at the end uh, messages for child sexual abuse material. Depending on how the rule is enforced, this could essentially break apps' uh, end-to-end encryption promise, which prevents third parties, including the app itself, from viewing user messages. Uh, In March, WhatsApp refused to comply with the bill and threatened to leave the UK rather than change its encryption policies. It joined Signal and other encrypted messaging services in protesting the bill, leading UK regulators to attempt to assuage, assage, assage, and assage um, their concerns by promising to only require "quote unquote" technically feasible measures. Reach for comment. WhatsApp owner Meta um, directed the verge to a September sixth tweet by WhatsApp head Will Cathcart. "Quote: The fact remains that scanning everyone's messages will destroy privacy as we know it." That was as true last year as it is today, unquote. Um, WhatsApp will, at WhatsApp will never break our encryption and remains vigilant against threats to do so, unquote. Mayor did not specify whether WhatsApp's availability in the UK would be affected. Signal President Charles Signal, uh, Meredith Whitaker, meanwhile issued tentative praise for the ongoing conversation around the bill. Quote, while it's not everything we wanted, we are more optimistic than we were when we began engaging with the UK government. It matters that the government came out publicly clearly acknowledging that there is no technology that can safely and privately scan everyone's communications, unquote. Uh, Whitaker said in the statement to The Verge, carrying on with the quote, at this point, it is imperative that we press Ofcom to incorporate the government's strong guideline uh, guidance, acknowledging that no technology exists that can safely and privately scan end-to-end encryption communications, and push them to clearly and publicly commit to not using the unchecked and unprecedented power vested in them under Clause 122 to undermine private communications infrastructure, unquote. Which indicated their signal was not in imminent danger of leaving the UK, quote, while, there, while this is not the ideal outcome, we are cautiously optimistic to see reality breaking through, she said, uh, and our position remains consistent. We will continue providing signal as a tool for meaningful private communications in the UK and everywhere. We will only leave if the choice is between adulterating uh, the privacy guarantees the people who use Signal depend on or exiting. Unquote. Ofcom will, quote, immediately begin work on tackling legal content and protecting children's safety and will take a phased approach to bringing the online safety bill into force. Um, I, 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 I really wonder just what the, num- what the work numbers are at a place like um, Ofcom because... They they can't even you know take they can't even take on like um, I feel like they're not even taking on you know TV seriously you know what I mean like, I feel like they're just um, just still not <laughs> they're still not doing things proper um, and the fact that and they're now given the entire on the entire I don't know uh, policing of the online safety bill I find a bit odd um, you know I do I haven't you know, look to the bill specifically or anything like that. Um, I know, obviously, you know, private messaging is a big concern for for some. Um, but you know, I feel I find it kind of funny, and um, the you know the government is apparently so you know uh, so up to the task of um, you know of uh, of cutting of cr- cracking down on you know illegal shit done on the internet. Um, 
while they can't even decide whether to renovate the House of Parliament and waiting until somebody inevitably dies because um, part of the roof caved them the fuck in, um, you know, during a live uh, during a live taping of Channel Four News. Like, it's bound that shit's bound to happen. I just find it funny that um, you know the uh, I, I like how how much energy. Um, which is very ironic for me to say, considering that, as I record, um, Rishi Sunak just dropped a talk about um, their, their net zero targets, and I think they did a full-on U-turn, which is very fu- funny um, and absolutely outstanding, um, considering that the next um, the next uh, <laughs> topic is about the environment. But yeah, I just um, I just find it interesting that you know they're so gung ho on this online safety bill and. Uh, I feel like that's always a red flag for me. I feel like if the if the, if the, especially this conservative government, I feel like if this conservative government, uh, really really trying to push for push for something, um, there's something wrong with it. And <laughs> I'm just I'm just gonna sit back and um, you know wait for, it, well wait to see if even the House of Lords actually take it on for first thing. And um, yeah, just um, just see how the how the uh, the media um, cracks cracks on this um, because um, not that I trust the mainstream UK media at all, but uh, you know it'll be interesting to see what their commentary is on the whole issue. Okay, so let's do our second uh, piece, which is about the environment, as I said. And uh, I love the title of this uh, particular particular one because it just it says a lot, um, and it doesn't need to be said, but it needs to be said, right? So this is by Elf Folan, uh, founder of Stats for Lefties and a columnist at Navarra Media. And guess where this is written? Navarra Media. It's called "The Public Wants to Save the Planet as Long as It Doesn't Personally Inconvenience Them." <laughs> I feel like that's the issue with just, I don't know, humans, right? Um, just, you know, wanting to be better, but kind of doing that, um, kind of doing that SpongeBob clip where he just goes, ah, I don't really feel like it. And that's it. Everything's inconveniencing, um, inconveniencing people. You know, I want to drive an SUV because reasons, reasons, reasons. I want to do this because reasons, reasons, reasons. I don't want to get rid of this. I don't want to stop eating meat. Yeah, nah, 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 nah. And again, right, you know, needs to be said in these conversations, right, we were talking about the public's um, dedication to, you know, not trying to kill us all, right, or not trying to inevitably um, collectively uh, put the foot down in... Uh, the whole human race, you know, riding off the, riding off the Grand Canyon. Um, obviously, you know, the individual is, uh, can't do much apart from, you know, what they can do. For me personally, um, I feel I'm probably in the top percentile of, uh, people that, you know, actually doesn't cause emissions. Like I don't drive, I take public transport, I walk pretty much everywhere I go, um, I eat relatively, you know, solidly, um, I don't, uh, the only, you know, I eat meat, 
but I don't feel like I have it that consistently. But then I think about, you know, I probably have it have a meat dish um, in my dinner, apart from pastas. Um, so, yeah, that's probably it. That's probably the worst part of me, right? You know, when it comes to just, like, you know, the footprint of whatever. But apart from that, yeah, I don't really do much, you know. Obviously, I'm using electricity here to record my pods, and, you know, so there's that. Um, but, yeah, what else? You know, cop vinyl, that's bad. <laughs> you know, it's just copying PVC. Um, that will just, um, you know, inevitably someday, hope, hopefully not, hopefully someone, you know, keeps uh, keeps my, you know, records um, in a safe space um, where they can survive and actually be used at some point uh, in the future, in the far future. But, you know, might end up in a landfill. And then that's just me just, yeah, that's just me and ev- me throwing something into the, into the landfill. Um, so, yeah, you know, try to recycle my shit. But even then, I talked about... Um, I talked about recycling, I think, a month or so ago on this show, and how that's kind of just not doing, not doing as much as I, th- I personally thought. So you know, I try and do my best. Um, but apart from going vegan, that's pretty much like I've pr- I'm pretty much solid everywhere else. I believe you know my 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 wardrobe ain't that stacked. Um, you know, I've got a solid wardrobe, but you know, nothing that is bursting out the seams or burst I don't need like a second cat uh, second wardrobe but anyway where am I getting to the point is individually obviously people can do only so much but it is funny when people you know go I'd love to do this but it's going to inconvenience me in this but this way in this way in this way let's jump in back in July just a boil um, experienced something unusual they found they were the ones being protested an alternative group called just stop pissing people off Attempted to block Just Up All from engaging uh, in disruptive, disruptive protests and interrupted their events, saying that the climate crisis is real, but the JSO is distracting and alienating people. The counter protests tell us a great deal about Britain's contradictory attitude toward uh, to the cr- climate crisis. Broadly, Brits understand that the climate crisis change that the climate crisis climate change is a mate. Why is it there twice? It's a major problem. 65% of us are worried about the climate crisis versus just 28% who aren't. While the same proportion support the government's aim of reducing Britain's net carbon emissions to zero by 2050. In fact, the climate is one of our top concerns. 29% say it's one of the top issues facing the country ahead of housing, 24. The exit, 18. And crime, 17. Um, so that's pretty good. So migration is third at 38, NHS is at 43, and the economy is number one at 60. Um, which, you know, migration doesn't need to be there, I feel. Um, NHS definitely, economy, I say NHS first, economy second, but then again, climate first, you know what I mean? Because we ain't going to be here if, if we don't sort out the climate, so yeah, but I don't know. It's one of those top three, uh, in the top three, definitely. Migration needs to just, people need to get off that. At first glance, um, Brits, including the majority of Tory voters, welcome policies to address the climate crisis. Eight in ten back more tree planting, subsidies for energy-efficient homes, and higher taxes for high-carbon companies. 62% would support a requirement for all energy production to come from renewable sources, but this enthusiasm has its limits. Yeah, I love how 89% are like, you know, plant more trees. Uh, These things aren't... um, I feel like these things aren't inconveniencing this is kind of the issue here right so plant more trees yeah 
That's not going to inconvenience anybody apart from maybe bird shitting on, you know, car parking spaces. Um, fund uh, energy efficient homes. Yeah, fund. So, you know, government fund energy efficient homes. People ain't going to pay to have their energy efficient homes unless, you know, not, unless it's actually, you know, affordable. Um, tax high carbon firms. Facts. Doesn't inconvenience anybody apart from if you're, you know, if you're owner of Shell or CEO of Shell. Uh, Banning single-use plastics, fine. I feel like that's a minor inconvenience um, to most people, um, but I feel like people can eat that. Only in our renewables, I don't think people understand how much of an inconvenience that could be, um, you know, potentially. Uh, frequent fire levy, sure. Uh, anyway, carrying on. That's the top five, uh, top six, by the way. When asked if they would back policies that would impose limits on what they personally can do, Brits quickly turned against them. For instance, two-thirds oppose the idea of a limit on how much meat they can buy. A majority oppose banning petrol and diesel cars. And while generally popular among Brits, the ultra-low emission zone, ULEZ, recently expanded across the entirety of uh, Greater London as part of a dedicated protest movement, because of course it has. This disconnect can lead voters to adopt seemingly incoherent positions, even though 62% of voters back the idea of requiring all energy to be renewable, just 39% want to ban new North Sea oil fields. Why do you care about North Sea oil fields? Why you, Who are these people that are going like, nah, we need more, more North Sea oil fields? Like you, what the fuck are you talking about? Like you fucking care. And a mere 32% want to prohibit the sale of gas boilers. Even though such policies would logically flow from renewables requirements. See, that's what I'm talking about. People would love to love the idea of renewable energy, but don't actually want to put in the work on it. In theory, uh, Brits want all energy to be renewable. In practice, they do not. Facts. There you go. Outstanding. Brits, there's a t- bunch of um, graphs and bar charts here if you want to spin it as well. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to, you know, visualize it for you, but it's there. Brits seem to accept that planes are a contributing factor to pollution and carbon emissions and a free- and back a frequent flyer levy. But when asked if they would back a blanket airfare tax, support melts away. Just 29% back a blanket tax versus the 56% who back targeting frequent flyers. Outstanding. I love it. I love it how just people you know, just a lying on themselves, you know what I mean, like, oh, I want to do this, I want to do this, okay, right, here's some, here's some options for you, no, 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 brilliant, this issue speaks to a broader problem, Brits are all in favour of actions to address the climate crisis, but not when it requires them to contribute personally, 55% of Brits think that policies to reduce emissions should not be introduced if they result in high costs for ordinary people, just 27% said they should, Hence the public opposition to an increase in fuel duty, just 25% supported with 65% opposed. Indeed, cars are a particularly sore point for climate-conscious Brits who have paradoxically become increasingly defensive of their vehicles in recent years. Back in 2021, a majority of Brits, 51%, supported banning the sale of petrol cars by 2030, with just 35% opposed. In 2023, those numbers were reversed. Outstanding. I love it. I love it. I think that's a moral panic edition as well. I feel like, you know, once people start talking about SUVs and just, you know, petrol cars in general, it's like, oh, no, I can't take my car away. And, you know, I get it, right? From a, you know, from a a necessity standpoint, I get why people need cars, right? Um, We're not, 
America bad, but we're bad, right? Um, you know, America needs cars. Like, they don't have any public transport. Um, everything's a fucking highway. Like, they need cars, right, unfortunately. Um, so, you know, if anybody talks about no cars, it's kind of a, it's kind of a pointless argument to have because they're just going to ask you, well, what the fuck do we do without cars? Because we need to drive to everywhere. <laughs> and you need to drive to everywhere. Um, and, you know, makes sense. And I feel like people can ask that question when it comes to this as well. It's a little lesser since, you know, there are, um, you know, I mean, not in every not in every spot, obviously. Obviously, there's like, you know, small villages and, you know, smaller towns and less developed towns, et cetera, et cetera, across the country. Um, but, you know, no, but no, everybody. It's not. It's not like Wales, right? Where I feel like um, people probably need cars more than someone in London, for example, because obviously London has a very robust public transport system. Um, Wales do not. <laughs> Wales is just you know um, single lane roads going up and down hills, and <laughs> that's pretty. And apart from maybe like whatever they have in Cardiff or Swansea or you know uh, a major town or city. Um, in Wales, right? Different, different vibes. So I get it. I get why people are opposed. Um, if public transport was better than uh, in some, in majority of places, then I feel like you know people would be more comfortable. But then again, um, people just like having cars because da 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 convenience. Convenience is the key word here, isn't it? It's just everything's convenient. And then people just start going, oh, no, can't do that. I need my car. And I get it. And everybody's like them SUV mugs that have an SUV just for the sake of having a fucking SUV, i.e. every fucking footballer. Um, go look at, uh, you know, there's, there's videos that I don't know who these people are, but there's, there's, um, there's videos I keep seeing uh, now and again where there's like people waiting outside football training grounds. And, you know, they're trying to, you know, just get a sign in. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, can you sign my shirt? You know, and just uh, try and get a picture with them as they leave, as they leave training, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Just those people have, I don't know, nothing to do <laughs> during the day. Um, but you know, you watch that, and you watch like a time lapse of it. It's like SUV, 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 supercar. <laughs> it's just, it's it's just silly. Um, where was I? Anyway, I I get it, but. I get it in some cases, but I feel like people are being very disingenuous. That's all I'm saying. These three factors, a desire to avoid personal convenience, there you go, and a strong attachment to their cars may explain why Brits distaste for just up oil. Seven in ten think that the group's tactic of slowing down and blocking traffic on busy roads is unjustifiable, and why JSO has attracted such zealous counter-protests. In truth, the British public is not as supportive of action on the climate crisis as many environmentalists would hope. We favour general and contentious ideas, net zero, tree planting, tax rises on higher carbon companies. But when asked for our opinion on a climate policy which directly affects us personally, we bulk. This is partly due to worries about cost of living, but it's also about avoiding personal inconvenience. Just stop pissing everyone off. Perfectly encapsulate uh, the British attitude to the climate crisis. Sure, it's a problem, but not ours. As Homer Simpson once asked, can't someone else do it? And I feel like that's kind of it. That's kind of why I feel so um, apathetic most of the time towards just um, uh, towards this whole, you know, life 
species threatening issue um, that we have. Um, people just don't want to actually um, incon- be inconvenienced by anything. Um, I feel like that's an issue of the 20th century just um, sitting sitting with us. Um, there was, you know, just a time. I don't know when you want to pinpoint that particular time, but there was a time that came around in the 20th century where people got comfy, where um, people had their cars and they could travel to work and they can go anywhere and then they can do this with their house and yada, 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 and be comfy, be retired, da, 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 right, and have this comfortability. And now, even with the compounding of the cost of living crisis, you know, um, people, rightly so, um, have a gripe about certain things, um, and they don't want to sacrifice because they feel they sacrificed enough. And, you know, I respect those people that think so. But I feel there is a very disingenuous and, I dare say, bad faith amount of people, um, bad faith contingent that um, just want to ride their SUVs um, and not be criticised for it. And I find them people, you know, the worst of us, to be completely honest. And, um, you know, just being that... It's just that... That's a very 20th century, 20th century mentality, I feel. You know, like before the 20th century, I feel everything was a, for the majority of people, was a matter of like, you know, survival. And again, there are people that are in survival mode as we speak, cost of living crisis, extreme levels of child poverty, etc., etc., here in the UK and in other places, right? I get it. I get it. There are, pl- there are places where people are literally on survival mode and have been on survival mode all their lives right i get that but there are some people where they just got comfy and they're just being dicks about it at this point and we're going to suffer because of those people and now there's people doing the exact opposite now i get if you were indifferent about just stop oil right i get it i get it if you were indifferent but to be so against it to create a counter-protesting to the protest movement of Just Up Oil is the most, oh, it's the most distasteful, backwards, literally just, you're going to be against it. History is not going to rate you. I'm just going to say that. When we're all dying in hellfire of 40 degree weather and heat stroke, you fuckers are going to be the issue. Like you fuckers are gonna just be going, oh no, why didn't we, why didn't the government do something because you were getting pissy about people stopping cars? That's what you do. So you know, um, don't don't be complaining. I'm just saying, don't be, if you're one of those people, and I'm not sure you're not. If you're a WG listener, don't be one of those people that are just going, oh no, regret, regret, regret. You know, twenty years later, or even that. Be so fucking ignorant that you won't even notice that it's your fault, which is even worse. Um, don't be going like that. Don't be, don't be acting like, ooh, what happened? Whatever happened? How did we get here? Why the fuck do you think? Because, you know, people wanted to ride their SUVs and didn't want to be inconvenienced. That's all it is, among other things, of course. But, yeah, you know, I do preface again that, you know, we are we are individuals and we can only do so much, you know. I'm not saying... The you SUV driver, um, you know, could get to could sell that SUV and uh, get another car, get a smaller car, uh, maybe get an electric car, maybe I don't know. Um, but 
You know? You ain't going to do that because why? It's an inconvenience at the end of the day. So now we jump into a long read where we get into uh, by The Atlantic, uh, Hip Hop's Fiercest Critic, um, written by Spencer Cornhaber, uh, dropped on September 6th, 2023. And with that said, let's jump right in. One sunny day in 1995, the notorious B.I.G. sat in the passenger seat of a black Mercedes-Benz, smoking joints and talking shit. Of course, Biggie did these things on many days during his short lifetime, but on this particular day, a neighborhood friend named Dream Hampton was in the back seat with a video camera. Wearing Versace sunglasses and a checked purple shirt, the 23-year-old rapper, whose breakout album Ready to Die had come out the year before, held a chunky cell phone to his ear. He was making plans and talking about girls, riffing in his lisped woof of a voice. He laughed and brought a square of rolling paper full of pot leaves to his lips. From behind the camera, Hampton asked whether he intended to consume the entire bag of weed. Annoyed at the interruption, Biggie mocked her question. Hampton's voice turned sharp. Why are you going at me today? She asked. What's the problem? Do we need to do something before we go on the road? Take this outside? The video cut to stack. I watched the footage this past June in the basement of Hampton's house on Martha's Vineyard. Hampton herself was upstairs. She'd said it would be weird to view her younger self with me. I was surprised that she was willing to show me the footage at all. Hampton is arguably the most significant music journalist of her generation. She started out writing for the hip-hop magazine The Source in the 1990s before becoming a contributor to Vibe and The Village Voice. As hip-hop ascended to global dominance, Hampton, whose lowercase byline is inspired by the black feminist critic Bell Hooks, challenged it from the inside, treating rap music with the seriousness it deserved while calling out its materialism and misogyny. She co-wrote Jay-Z's landmark 2010 memoir. She produced a 2019 documentary that is widely credited with landing R. Kelly, the R&B star who contributed many horny refrains to rap songs, in prison after decades of unpunished sexual predation. Yet, I'd arrived two days earlier thinking that the many artists who crossed her path would be mostly off-limits for discussion. She has publicly, repeatedly broken up with hip-hop. She is now primarily a filmmaker and an activist. A profile of her focused on hip-hop, she texted me, would be her nightmare, a stance that had softened only slightly by the time we met. Her reluctance is partly a reflection of the life she leads in her early 50s. Although she was born in Detroit and made her name in New York City, she now spends much of the year on Martha's Vineyard. When she first visited friends there shortly after the birth of her daughter in 1996, she experienced a new kind of calm. Quote, I didn't even know what it felt like for a place to bring you peace, she told me. Now, while turkeys wander past the rhododendrons in her yard, her home thrums with indie rock and NPR news, not Kendrick Lamar or Ice Spice, Though hip-hop celebrated its 50th birthday this year, commemorating a legendary August 1973 party in the Bronx, she realises that the genre isn't exactly courting middle-aged mums. Even if I could get down on some knee pads and do WAP, which I can't, it's not for me, she said. 
referring to the raunchy choreography associated with Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion's 2020 hit. But her turn away from hip-hop is also rooted in pain and frustration. She and Biggie were so close that she asked him to be her daughter's godfather. He gave his daughter the middle name Dream. She brought him to her film classes at NYU. He gave feedback on her writing. Hampton also hassled Biggie about the sexism of his lyrics, while he, out of her view, abused his girlfriend and protege Lil' Kim. Maybe he would have evolved. Maybe he wouldn't have. Hampton will never know. A drive-by shooter killed him when he was 24, likely because of a rap beef. I watched someone get killed who would still be alive if it wasn't for hip-hop, Hampton told me. As she looks out on today's hip-hop landscape, Hampton still sees plenty of the violent machismo that shaped and endangered her friend, and that she has protested in various ways since she was 19. Hip-hop, in her view, has turned out to be a tool of the same unequal, exploitative system it once defied. In the beginning, she felt that the music had a certain joy and uplift, even as it was, quote, grounded in the funk and the mire, unquote, of the country where it was born. Rap seemed to be reaching for something, Hampton told me, but maybe the sin was that it was reaching to be part of America. Gradually, over decades, she has focused on other ways of trying to make change. Advocacy and film work, which she has always believed were truer callings for her than writing, she has been a liaison between political causes and popular culture, helping John Legend, for instance, launch a campaign against mass incarceration in 2015. She has also directed, written, or produced activist-minded entertainment, such as Finding Justice, a 2019 BET documentary series about black grassroots organising, and Freshwater, a 2022 visual memoir about flooding in Detroit. These efforts have shaped law, litigation, and the thinking of everyday people. Lately, however, hip-hop has drawn her back in. The genre's 50th birthday celebrations, a 12-minute Grammys medley, commemorative sneaker lines, a press conference at which New York City Mayor Eric Adams, an ex-cop, quoted Public Enemies' Fight the Power, have put a gauzy sheen on a difficult history, and Hampton feels obligated to offer a more complicated view. To that end, she reluctantly helped produce and direct a new Netflix docuseries about female rappers, and she has been revisiting her archives, including the Biggie footage I saw, with thoughts of how to correct unduly rosy public narratives about the dominant musical form of our time. Once again, she can't help but talk back. Hampton's first editorial was so controversial that she says Spike Lee offered to lend her some bodyguards. It ran in 1991 in The Source, where Hampton had been hired as a photo editor, and called out the rapper Dr. Dre for assaulting the 22-year-old TV personality Dee Barnes. Hampton described an emerging pattern of misogyny in the lyrics and behaviour of hip-hop's young male stars. In our present era of morally charged cultural criticism, the essay seems as the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Rachel Karsdi Ganser, a former assistant of Hampton's, put it to me like a, quote, letter from the future, unquote. Hampton brought up the article on the first night we met to mock it. We were standing in a kitchen. Hampton was searing salmon in a cast iron skillet, a bag of superfood powder slumped on the countertop. The house is bright and airy with white walls and sculptural furniture. Sitting on her mantle was a Kahindi Wiley bust of a black boy posed like Louis XVI. One bookshelf featured an ancestor altar with black and white photos of lost loved ones, including Biggie. 
Though she lives alone, she has a 10-foot-long dining table both here and in the apartment she keeps in Detroit for hosting. Hampton called her Dr. Dre editorial shrill and sanctimonious. I recited its last line, an assertion that the abuse of black women, quote, has no place in revolutionary music, unquote. Hampton laughed at her own naivete. It's so funny. A youthful belief that hip-hop could upend society, she explained, was born from growing up on the east side of Detroit as the daughter of a mechanic father and waitress mother. While the crack epidemic turned many of her neighbours into dealers or users, she stayed inside reading bell hooks, captivated by the way hooks views politics and culture in her criticism, and the way she centred black women, whose perspective had for so long been sidelined. Hampton's teen years were spent taking a bus to a magnet high school full of rich kids who threw house pies straight out of a John Hughes movie. The classism of the Reagan era was in the air, but so was a stark counterpoint, the economic deprivation of black and brown people in American cities. I was ashamed of being poor, Hampton said, and hip-hop may be not ashamed. Rap introduced rebellious ideas to Hampton's own life. KRS-One's Beef, an anti-animal cruelty manifesto, turned Hampton into a vegetarian. A public enemy lyric taught her about a Sartish Corps, the Black Liberation Army activist living as a fugitive in Cuba after being convicted of killing a police officer. After Hampton moved to New York to study film at NYU, she co-founded a chapter of the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, an activist organization inspired by black radical figures such as Shakur. Hampton began enlisting rappers to play benefit gigs. Journalism gave Hampton a broader platform. The source sought to document rap with energy and ambition that Rolling Stone had brought to rock. Informed by the cool wit of Joan Didion and the cadence of rap itself, Hampton filled her articles with colour and incident, slang and exegesis. In one 1993 feature, she wrote that the rapper Lil Malik, suspicious of what she was scribbling in her notes, threatened to shoot her. Give me the get, I'ma smoke this bitch. Hampton was unfazed. I'm not sure if this is the beginning of some new rhyme, or if this little boy is trying to get a spanking, she wrote. In the male-dominated realm of hip-hop, female rap journalists had to contend with this kind of treatment from their subjects. Hampton came up among a group of hip-hop feminists, to use the culture writer Joe Morgan's term, women who championed the genre while still sharply criticising it. Even in that fearless cohort, Hampton's voice stood out for its boldness, recalls Kian Mayo, a former editor-in-chief of Ebony and a longtime friend of Hampton's who also worked with her at the source, quote, Dream had a certain kind of self-possession that was not easy to miss, Mayo told me. I remember being like, damn, this girl's not playing games, unquote. Then there was her inimitable style. Every story she wrote left an impression, Questlove, the drummer for The Roots, told me, as a young musician, he thrilled to Hampton's work for his cinematic portrayal of a world he hoped to join. I'm talking 70s Scorsese levels of description. When a Hampton column in Spin described Tretch from Naughty by Nature as, quote, one of about three people on the whole planet who gives real hugs, unquote, Questlove made a promise to himself. One day, he'd become important enough to hug Dream Hampton. Hampton really did get that close to hip-hop major players. She rode jet skis at Puffy's house. Queen Latifah briefly hired her to work at a record label. Hampton's daughter Nina, who is now in her late 20s, told me, quote, the only person I've ever seen her be starstruck about was the Property Brothers, unquote. 
A few blocks away from where Hampton smoked with Biggie, the members of Diggable Planets were recording jazz-inflected anthems about Black Pride. Hampton dated a rapper in that band, Ishmael Butler. He told me that he found her, quote, glamorous in a way and a little aloof, unquote. Yet he was mesmerised by her patter of literary observations, political theory and wisecracks. She would say things to you about yourself that nobody else would, but it was always true. He could feel their conversation seeping into his work. She was already understanding what hip-hop was in a way that even people participating in it weren't, in terms of social, economic and historical context, Butler said. Being so enmeshed in the culture might have sanded down another writer's edge, but Hampton's intimacy with the scene she wrote about lent her a particular authority. She came off as concerned, but not condescending, always alive to artists' intentions and environment. When commentators began to pit so-called street rappers such as Biggie against so-called conscious ones such as Diggable, Hampton took to the village voice to point out that both acts hailed from the same hood and voiced the same struggles. The artist's contrasting sounds, hard and smooth, were equally valid forms of black self-expression. Both artists were responding, in their way, to life in a racist society. As Hampton put it in a review, if they differ, it's hardly on theory. By the mid-90s, national politicians were regularly inveighing against rap's indecency, but Hampton was developing a more nuanced and bleaker complaint. 1996 double review of now classic Nas and Jay-Z albums, It Was Rin and Reasonable Doubt respectively, offered a sweeping sermon on the state of hip-hop. Aesthetically, the music was at its, quote, absolute best and most sophisticated, unquote. But philosophically, it was stuck on, quote, hypercapitalism, numbness, cartoonish misogyny, unquote. These were, in her analysis, generational pathologies, instilled by the crack era. Drugs hadn't just brought death and incarceration to poor urban areas, they had created new classes of haves and have-nots. My fellow 10th graders left for summer break aspiring breakdancers and returned that fall as ballers dripping in gold, Hampton wrote. She yearned for music, quote, about land and liberation rather than suitcases full of Benjamins and ice, unquote. But she saw hip-hop as merely repackaging American greed and individualism. Jay-Z, then a 26-year-old who started dealing drugs at age 13, had rarely been written about with such rigour. He called up Hampton to chat, sparking a friendship that continues today. In 1998, Hampton wrote a masterful Vibe cover story probing Jay-Z's, quote, murderous, enterprising, unquote, persona. It culminated with her asking if he was haunted by the little boys who just wanted to be him and who ended up dead or in prison. Jay-Z acknowledged some guilt but said, I shake it off, you know, Hampton wrote. Well, no, I don't. Rap's body count was, by that point, a personal source of anguish. Hampton has spent six months profiling Tupac Shakur, the West Coast firebrand who'd been raised around the same black radicals Hampton admired, and they become good friends. He used to tease Hampton for her unruly hair. How you get pregnant, he joked. When he was killed in still unsolved 1996 shooting, Hampton felt a selfish anger. He'd never get to meet her newborn daughter. Six months later, Biggie was murdered in what many believe was a mistaken attempt to revenge for Tupac's death. A sickening end to a relationship that began with Hampton introducing the two men on a music video set in the early 90s. A village voice obituaries for both rappers seethed 
with frustration. The big essay was an intimate account of grief. I visit Big's mother, his condo in Teaneck, and she cries a lot. Her whole chest caves in, and she can't breathe. Hampton's Tupac obit was more of an elegy for an idea. She lamented that Tupac didn't, quote, get his shit together and articulate nationalism for our generation, unquote. She also wrote a vow that she would break and renew for years to come. I want to say that for me, hip-hop is dead. One morning, Hampton took me on a driving tour of the curving forested roads of the vineyard, past shingled cottages and rocky bluffs, pointing out the island's various neighbourhoods. Over there, she said, people wear lobsters on their pants, and they're serious about it. She told me that she had an epiphany after we talked that night before. She'd been up late thinking about Tupac, and suddenly she was thinking about her own brother and the cowardice of men. Tupac was on trial for sexual assault when Hampton profiled him in 1994. A female fan said that the rapper and his friends had raped her in a New York hotel room. Tupac said that he'd been sleeping in another room while other men attacked her. Eventually, Tupac would be convicted of groping the woman, but not of raping her. At the time, Hampton's speculation was that Tupac hadn't assaulted the accuser, but that he'd been awake while the other men did, and he hadn't intervened. When Hampton accused Tupac of this over lunch, she said he went on a sexist tirade, causing the two of them to get kicked out of the restaurant. What she realised the night before our vineyard drive is that the story of Tupac in that hotel room echoes one of her most difficult memories of her own brother. Hampton's brother, who is one year younger than she is, recurs in her writing as an example of men absorbing hip-hop's messages. Hampton's 1991 review of N.W.A.'s second album of brutal gangster rap, When Will This Cave Boy Shit End?, she asked, closed with the image of him, right hand on his nuts, cranking the volume. In 2012, he appeared in a personal essay she wrote about the time a group of neighbourhood bullies tried to rape her when she was in 8th grade. He had let the boys into their house and, she wrote, stayed downstairs as she fought them off. Hampton hasn't spoken to her brother in decades, but I called him and he picked up on the first ring. I feel bad for what happened, he said, on the night Hampton was attacked. He disagreed with some details of her account saying that he entered the room a few minutes after the violence began, at which point the boy stopped. On the whole, he expressed a mix of sadness and resentment about his relationship with his sister. He's proud of her, he said, and has followed her career from afar, but he thinks she believes that men are the villain. When I told Hampton that I talked with her brother, she replied, Oh good, he's alive then. She didn't want to relitigate the night of the assault. I remember doing my own fighting, she said but she had a strong response to the accusation that she vilifies men. That's a Twitter troll comment about feminists, she said. It's so reductive and it's so old. She told me that she doesn't see her brother, who was a young adolescent then, as a villain for not fighting for her that night. In fact, she said she tries to have sympathy for him and for Tupac. The male tendency to band together at the expense of women has been inculcated over generations long before rap. I always say I didn't learn about bitches and hoes from hip-hop, she said. I learned it from the Bible. But she believes, as Bell Hooks argued, that little political progress for black people, much less the revolution, can be accomplished without addressing sexism. Misogyny, Hamza told me, is a gateway to other forms of intolerance. If it's possible for you to hate people in your own community, she said, 
then it's possible for you to be corrupted in all these other ways. Although she has never really stopped trying to get men to rethink their programming, the effort can feel maddening. In 2012, the rapper Tushaw made a video counselling young boys to put their hands down girls' underwear. In a dialogue published by Ebony, Hampton explained to him why this was a disgusting thing to do. Tushaw said he hadn't known, until that controversy, what sexual assault really was. Coming from a then 45-year-old rap legend, this was a rather dispiriting sign of progress. So when Hampton was approached to direct a documentary about R. Kelly's sex crimes in 2018, she had little reason to believe that the project would change anything. Kelly's interests in underage girls had been infamous ever since he illegally married the 15-year-old singer Leah in 1994. In 2008, he was acquitted in a trial over child pornography charges involving a video that appeared to show him urinating on a 14-year-old girl. In 2017, the journalist Jim DeRogatis reported that Kelly had led a quote-unquote cult of women whom, through abuse and emotional manipulation, he kept in virtual captivity. DeRogatis's article was widely circulated, and yet Kelly denied the allegations and remained a major label ticket seller. Although R. Kelly is finally in prison, Hampton doesn't see much evidence that the black women are now any more likely to be believed when they speak out about abuse. Hampton agreed to make surviving R. Kelly as a kind of penance. She had profiled Kelly in 2000, but she failed to look behind the closed doors of his studio. As she later wrote in The Hollywood Reporter, I'd been in Jeffrey Dahmer's kitchen and not opened the fridge. So she set about the grueling work of getting victims to tell their stories on camera despite Kelly's threats to blackmail those who spoke out. The singer's manager called in a threat to the theatrical premiere, warning that someone there had a gun and would start shooting. The event was cancelled, but an average of 2.1 million people still tuned in as the six-part series aired on Lifetime in early 2019. Kelly's behaviour had been widely treated as a punchline in the past, but now public sentiment turned toward horror and fury. One woman who watched the documentary was Kim Fox, a Chicago area prosecutor who issued a call for victims to contact her. Litigation around the country soon followed. In New York, charges were filed for sex trafficking and racketeering, and Kelly received a 30-year prison sentence in June 2022. The documentary, which arrived amid the hashtag MeToo movement, is now invoked as evidence of what a well-formed provocation time to its moment can achieve. W. Kamal Bell, who was inspired by Hampton to film his own docuseries about the crimes of Bill Cosby, noted that Surviving uses long takes and in-depth interviews to depict its subjects as, quote, fully functioning human beings and not people who are defined by their experience with R. Kelly, unquote. Hampton's filmmaking transcended voyeurism by conveying an urgent message. There's an active crime taking place right now, and I need your help to stop it, as Bell put it. Her uncompromising sensibility had, it seemed, made a difference. Hampton, however, is focused squarely on what the documentary has not accomplished. Her speech, normally fluid and lively, stiffened whenever Kelly's name came up in our conversations. Surviving gets held up as something that had impact, right? She said. What they mean is that there were consequences for R. Kelly. But I would argue this. If R. Kelly had apologised, if he had owned the harm that he caused, 
if he had made a real attempt at restitution, then it would have impacted the culture. Instead, he sobbed and screamed denials at Gail King in a March 2019 TV interview. Hampton thinks America's legal system, so focused on punishment, discourages honest reckonings in cases of abuse. Kelly's victims have been left to process what happened to them while fending off harassment by the singer's supporters, who Hampton says remain active enough as she retains her security manager. And although Kelly is finally in prison, she doesn't see much evidence that black women are now any more likely to be believed when they speak out about abuse. And talking about R. Kelly, Hampton brought up a seemingly unrelated incident, shooting of Megan Stallion by another rapper, Tory Lanez, in 2020. An abundance of evidence indicated that Lanez had fired a gun at Megan's feet during an argument, and he was convicted of assault in December. He's since been sentenced to 10 years for the shooting. But up until that conviction, much of the hip-hop world had coalesced around a narrative that portrayed Megan as a jilted lover of Lanez, who had fabricated his attack on her. She wept on TV about the pain she experienced. Drake made a song that seemed to call her a liar. To Hampton, the way that men had circled up to discredit a black woman felt like a repudiation of everything her work represented. You do something like surviving, or you have a moment like hashtag me too, and it's incredibly Sisyphean, she said. The blowback is immediate and louder than any progress I was made, so it can have you retreat to your garden. Hampton's dismay is not limited to hip-hop and the patriarchy. When we spoke, she also worried about climate change, Gen Z's mental health, and the popularity of the TV series Yellowstone. But she has a certain exuberance too, and even her darkest riffs are interspersed with jokes and recommendations. Listening to her talk, you get the feeling that great catharsis and truth are always just around the bend, after one more digression about poverty or shark attacks. A little gloom can be useful in the idealistic world of left-wing activism. Hampton's longtime friend Manifa Bandele, formerly a head of Time's Up, the organisation that fights workplace sexual harassment, said that Hampton's pessimism has had an unusually constructive bent. She recalled that Hampton would bemoan the futility of the Malcolm X grassroots movement mission to free incarcerated black activists and then whip up a ferociously effective publicity campaign for the group. She sees things for what they really are, Bandele said. So that includes the cracks, the deficits. Over the years, Hampton has adjusted to the idea that not all progress needs to be a full-on revolution, but her candor can also alienate people who would otherwise be on her side. In both social and professional settings, quote, I have had to tell her to bring it down a thousand, Bandele told me. Mayo, Hampton's friend and former colleague, told me that she's long admired that Hampton was quote, born free, just came here without the rules, without propensity to even understand the rules, unquote. Yet because of that wild honesty, people have at times, quote, questioned whether she was kind, sometimes unfairly, sometimes fairly, Mayo said. She is not absolved of her accountability to friends and relationships any more than any of us are, unquote. A few clashes have been public. In 2012, she caused a media vortex by tweeting that an album of protest music by Nas, one of the most vaunted lyricists of all time, had been largely written by the rappers Stick Man and Jay Electronica. She told me that she just wanted to deflate hype around songs that aren't as deep politically as they pretend to be. But in a genre where the myth of the lone genius reigns supreme, 
Accusations of ghostwriting are explosive. The songwriting credits for the album include the artist she had named, but all three men publicly denied Hampton's claims, and rap fans tweeted that she was a quote-unquote bitch, and a disgruntled quote-unquote groupie. Even though the backlash was clearly laced with sexism, friends wondered why she needed to poke this particular bear. Stickman had been a close friend. She had been an early booster of Jay Electronica's music, and she first met Nas in the 90s. None of them has talked to her since. Surviving R. Kelly also tested her friendships. After the film premiered, she spoke openly about the fact that a number of celebrities, including Questlove and Jay-Z, had declined to be interviewed. The latter recorded two full albums with Kelly in the early 2000s. Some on social media accused these artists of tactically supporting abuse. Jay-Z privately expressed bafflement that she'd thrown him into the controversy. Questlove tweeted that he decided against appearing in the documentary only because he'd been asked to attest to R. Kelly's musical talent, a claim Hampton denied. She told me she refused to apologise for truthfully responding to questions from reporters about the public figures who had turned down interviews. Even now, she believes that Jay-Z could have used his position of power to hold Kelly accountable. I feel like why did in six hours he could have done in 15 second verse, she told me. Questlove, who saw our friendship so long ago, still feels shaken by the episode. The calling down of a really great relationship, I mourned that, he told me. Hampton tends to invoke being a perfectionist Virgo when discussing her propensity for confrontation. She's trying to change, moving from writing to filmmaking, a medium that requires intense collaboration, has, she said, shown her the need to communicate more gently. Yet she also had a cutting take on people who can't handle harsh feedback. There is an ego in having everything filtered through the lens of you and your feelings, she said. Butler, the Digable Planets rapper, pushed back on the suggestion that she looks for conflict. I would not say she challenges, I would say that she loves, he told me. Because if she don't love you, she'll watch you do whatever you do and just be like, oh well. Hampton wanted to say, oh well, when asked to help produce and direct the new Netflix docuseries Ladies First, a story of women in hip-hop, she preferred to spend time on her own creative ambitions, a TV comedy about white militias, an adaptation of writing by the South African author Bessie Head, a documentary dissecting the politics of police procedurals. But the production firm Culture House pitched her repeatedly, even after she declined. What finally pulled her in was her need to critique. For decades, the list of household name female rappers remained vanishingly small. But in the past few years, women have, by some measures, become the driving force in mainstream rap. This development, arriving around the 50th birthday of hip-hop, might seem like an occasion to celebrate, but Hampton felt that the Black Joy Mafia needed a reality trick. They were telling a kind of triumphant story about representation, she said, of the team at Culture House. And I'm saying, in so many ways, the story of women in hip-hop is more Game of Thrones than it is Sex in the Sea. The horror stories are numerous. An unfair record deal left TLC penniless at the high of the group's success. Only innovators, such as Shah Rock, feel they've been driven out of the industry. As for today's boom in female rappers, quote, most of these women are putting the P in patriarchy, unquote. Cardi B, who has channeled marriage and motherhood into famously racy lyrics, is, quote, incredibly conventional, unquote, Hampton said. 
She's like, I'm a hoe for my husband. Cardi B is an Afro-Latina, ex-stripper, and vocal Bernie Sanders supporter with a string of number one hits. She has quite plainly broken a few boundaries. In her unapologetic vulgarity, she is also a part of a wave of artists arguably doing for the female libido what decades of music, not just hip-hop, have done for male lust. But Hampton is asking that we not overrate symbolic victories, that we not let flashy displays of female empowerment distract from the very real problems women face. Carrie Twig, one of the executive producers of the series, gave a wry smile when I relayed that Hampton had described herself as a, quote, pain in the butt, unquote, on the project. Twig had sought Hampton's expertise precisely to give Ladies First some bite. Quote, It's really easy to tell a glitzy, happy version of hip-hop. Hey, look, all these women. They made all this money, she said. Dream was always the first person to be like, and at what cost? Every single pass, Dream was the first person to be able to spot compromise, inauthenticity, unquote. The resulting series doesn't shy away from showing tragedy and exploitation, and it smartly highlights a variety of sexist double standards. But also flaunts the sounds and fashions of artists such as Nicki Minaj, Doja Cat, and yes, Cardi B, to show how hip-hop really has opened up to female performers. Hampton admitted that even she was moved by some of the more celebratory material. Over the years, she has adjusted to the idea that not all progress needs to be a full-on revolution. The creativity that we fight with is like life itself, she said. For me, hip-hop was one of those creative tools with which we fought. We weren't always fighting systemic oppression. Sometimes we were just fighting respectability politics. We didn't even call it that, but we just knew that we wanted to wear shorts that cut out our ass. The series also devotes a few moments to Hampton herself, the now middle-aged Dee Barnes, the TV host whom Dr. Dre attacked 32 years ago, an incident for which he offered only a vague apology to the Wyndham of Hurt in 2015, expresses tearful gratitude that Hampton defended her in the source. Photos of Hampton and snippets of her articles flash on the screen. Joan Morgan speaks of the importance of female rap journalists. Quote, we love hip-hop enough to hold it accountable, unquote. It was supposed to be my final hours on Martha's Vineyard. Wildfire smoke blanketed New York City, grounding my flight home. So I had time to sit on Hampton's back porch. Nina, her daughter, and house guest the architect V. Mitch McEwen were there for lunch. Nina shared a story about taking a nap at the house of some family friends, Jay-Z and Beyonce. McEwen described Hampton's Detroit home as a kind of salon for the city's promising minds. Quote, You would hear about these young real estate developers, or these amazing artists, or these queer activists, and then you'd go to Dream's dinner, and they'd all be sitting around the table, she said. Hampton came out with plates of shrimp and grits, and explained why, after two days of telling me she was over hip-hop, she was now comfortable having me see the footage of Biggie that she hadn't watched in years. She soon hopes to say a final farewell to the genre by editing her tape archives, including night zero video of Snoop Dogg, Method Man, and Q-Tip, into a short feature. Tentatively titled, I Used to Love You, the project will cut against 50th anniversary hagiographies of rap grace. She says she has footage of Biggie lecturing Lil' Kim as she needs to wear makeup in public. Hampton says she also has a tape of herself 
chewing out Biggie in the studio for lyrics about robbing pregnant women. But the clips I watched that day mostly captured what Hampton had called life itself. On a Brooklyn street, she and Biggie sat amid a fleet of double-parked cars filled with members of the rap crew Junior Mafia. At one point, the rapper Lil Cease jumped into the seat next to Hampton and flashed a grin. I met this QE and her name was Dream, he rapped. Shorty was a top choice, had golden brown eyes, deaf lips and fly thighs. Biggie called for the windows to be rolled down to, quote, feel a nice little breeze, man, unquote. And Hampton's camera followed a plume of pot smoke escaping into the daylight. I turned from the screen to look around Hampton's basement. Here's her working space, bedecked with post-it notes about projects and plans. On one wall hung a poster of Jimmy Carter, who is Hampton's favourite president. Tacked to a pinboard was a commemorative subway card with Biggie's face on it. W.E.B. Du Bois' farewell letter to the world and a photo of Apache Warriors. There was also a sign expressing in block letters a sentiment that Hampton had never said out loud to me. Better is possible. Well, that was chunky. With that said, that was, to recap, that was Hip Hop's Fiercest Critic, written by Spencer Cornhaber for The Atlantic. And uh, yeah, ladies and gentlemen, with that said, leave it there on the Fifth Home Podcast Network. I'm a child and it's been what's good. Intro music was Too Much by Vanilla. Interlude music was a Charismatic by Nabi High. And also Sometime Soon by Tesk. Thanks to Chill Up Records for the first and third. You can find their links, all these links in the full show notes. And with that said, hope you all have a good week. I shall always try and do the same. But until the next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.